When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Hugh Aiken about his new book, Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. Hugh is a senior editor at Foreign Affairs Magazine. He has written about museums and the art world for the New York Review of Books, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Joining me as my special guest is Professor Philip Eliasoff. Dr. Eliasoff is a professor of art history and visual culture at Fairfield University in Connecticut. He's the author of many monographic books and museum catalogs of American paintings. He has published over 500 reviews and articles and essays in Art in America, Artist Magazine, and other scholarly publications. Hugh, Philip, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Glad to be here. Always good to be with you, Michael. So, Hugh, tell us about Picasso's War. How did you come to write it? And what's your background? Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so my background is as a writer and journalist. I have sort of two areas that I've been interested in for a long time. One is foreign affairs, geopolitics. I'm, I'm an editor at Foreign Affairs. The other is the art world. And these two themes uh, kind of come together perfectly in, in this story which I was drawn to by sort of two things that I noticed over the last few years. One is the movement of art across borders. And the second is the fate of modern art in the Nazi era. And that was a big story, but not much was known about the art that actually escaped from Europe. And that was the starting point of my story. And Philip, give us a few minutes about your background, please. Well, I'm the... I'd like, I was taught to paint uh, by my grandmother. I was doing watercolors and oil painting by the time I was six or seven years old. My grandmother was an American Impressionist artist who worked side by side with uh, Child Hassam. I went to college uh, thinking I was going to be a history major, and then suddenly I realized art history is the direction. I like to tell my freshmen that I declared my art history major when I was in my first week of college, and here I am uh, 50 years later, still doing art history. Probably most importantly, and Michael, you were a collaborator on this, I became very interested in American artists who were realist and social realist in the 1930s, whose careers were eclipsed after the advent of avant-gardism by the 
late 40s, and my main contribution in American art history is the rediscovery of an important artist named Paul Cadmus. And that's sort of the beginning of it. I've worked on many egg tempera realist painters. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today, Philip. So, Hugh, this book requires, in some sense, the reader to be a bit of a, a time traveler. And, and what I mean by that is that you're writing about Picasso and Matisse and Van Gogh and Brock and Durain, all of whom are household names now. And the Museum of Modern Art on 53rd is an institution in New York and the world. But at the time you're writing, none of that is true. And this book is about the struggle to achieve where we are now. So can you, if you wouldn't mind, take us back in time? And while the book is broadly focused, two artists principally form the heart of the narrative. That's Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse. So perhaps you can start, Hugh and Philip, you can fill in some of the details. Who were these painters in the early part of the 20th century? when your narrative begins? Well, you do have to go back in time. And I mean that sort of psychologically, we have in our world today, we think of Picasso as, you know, a $60 million painting. And uh, go back 100 years, it was the opposite. You know, you couldn't find anybody <laughs> who would buy a, buy a Picasso. I mean, it's hard to imagine. And so we go back to the beginning of the century, the art world such as it was in the United States was old art, art that had a pedigree, Rembrandt's, Velazquez's, Holbein's. America was obsessed with art. There were all these new museums. The Metropolitan Museum of Art was this big, new, very moneyed institution that was scooping up art all over the world. But modern art had no value. Art by living painters was not really valued, certainly not financially valued. So coming into this with a radical new kind of art was all the, all the harder because there was no precedent for contemporary art having value, let alone radical, subversive art uh, of the kind that Matisse and Picasso were introducing to the world. So 1907 is a sort of key turning point. Matisse and Picasso both moving in a far more radical direction. This is the beginning of cumism. This is, for Matisse, uh, fauvism, wild colors, the breakup of, of conventional naturalist depictions of the human figure that's being broken up, the picture plane, perspective, all the rules that had governed art since the time of Michelangelo were being sort of overturned by this small group of artists in Paris. And what was missing at the time was people that understood it. That's great. And Philip. Yeah. I, I, let me just add that when you, not only the art world, as you mentioned, is under dramatic transformation, but the entire zeitgeist of human knowledge at the, let's say at the turn of the century was in a dramatic reshaping of, you know, here, you know, when we, when we think about these players, here is Stravinsky re creating an entirely new form of atonal music. Here is, here are new type of literatures being written. 
the turn of the century. Sigmund Freud is suddenly reconstituting how the human consciousness works. And I always like to, you know, point out, here is young Albert Einstein at the patent office in Zurich in 1905. And a few hundred miles away in Paris is young Picasso coming into his own at the Bateau Lavoie. The world is being reshaped, and this is the world that you opens up in the opening chapters. And Hugh, you write that Picasso was making a frontal attack on painting itself. And his closest friends, Durain, Brock, Durain is quoted in your book as having said, looking at this painting, this was the Damsel de Avignon painting of Picasso. He says, looking at this kind of painting could lead to suicide. And Brock, who himself is a modern artist, says, looking at this painting is like drinking gasoline and spitting fire. How come? What was it? Philip just mentions that the world is beginning to turn more rapidly. But why was it that there was this frontal attack that was so disdained by fellow artists and certainly art collectors? Yeah, you find it over and over again in these first encounters with Picasso. The, the great Russian collector, Sergei Shukin, says, you know, it's like putting shards of glass in my mouth when he sees his first uh, Cubist painting by Picasso. And he buys it, I mean, to his credit. But it's hard for us to even sort of fathom how radical this was. This is a culture where we don't have visual imagery everywhere. There's not, you know, uh, color images of every new thing that's created. You have to encounter the art. And it is a frontal assault. Uh, these paintings that we, we think of today as some of Picasso's greatest works took years, even in that avant-garde circle, to be appreciated. And the, the Demoiselle d'Avignon is a great example of that. It was stuck in his studio for years. And so he was not only ahead of the sort of mainstream art world, he was way out there in his own circle of radical friends. And I think it's just so important to understand the radicalism of, of what was going on there. And Philip, Hugh writes in the book that contemporary modern art that we're talking about now was the colors and the techniques were deemed abhorrent and even subversive. So we're going to talk about this, but it's bringing in this subversion of the culture and the politic of the time. So can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Well, you had mentioned that since the Renaissance, we had basically a rediscovery of a new visual language of perspective, height, width, depth. A picture, whether it was a classical painting by Raphael or, or a Vermeer, or even up to the, the age of, uh, with experiment of color of the generation of the Impressionist, pictures still had content. A picture still had characters that were that were recognizable but the the reinvention of this mental space and picasso's breaks through into the non-linearity of vision he is essentially he's creating a fourth dimension of time in the same way that modern composers are reorienting the the basics of what would be classical music this was the world upside down, and this is what we call the advent of modernity. And you write, 
cue that, but for a small handful of people, some collectors, some patrons, and particularly, though, two visionaries, this may not have taken off, or at least it wouldn't have taken off as quickly as it did, even though quickly means sort of multiple decades here. And so the book has two interrelated halves, one focusing primarily on John Quinn and the other one on Alfred Barr. So tell us, if you wouldn't mind, who was John Quinn? Yeah, John Quinn is this kind of amazing figure. It's hard to come up with even a a remote parallel today. So he's this self-made lawyer, Irish-American from the Midwest, arrives in New York City in his early 20s. He has a Harvard Law degree. He works his way. uh, And he's almost immediately successful as a Wall Street attorney. He's, He's working. He's eventually the legal counsel for the New York Stock Exchange. So if you ended the story right there, he'd just be this successful, self-made guy who, who makes it in New York. But he has this radical maverick streak uh, from the beginning. He's a voracious reader. And he's fascinated by Ireland. He's through his Irish heritage. And it just happens that Ireland is having this uh, revolution in literature. This is the Irish literary renaissance. Yeats and a whole circle of Irish writers are kind of remaking the Irish nation in the, in the way that modern art would soon remake the art world. And Quinn goes from radical modern Irish literature to modern art in, in the space of a few years. And he sees the promotion of new art as a way to change American culture. He's sort of stuck in New York. He, you know, he can't quite break into the East Coast, the sort of WASP elite. And that elite is is very conservative. The cultural values are looking towards the past. There's a kind of cultural insecurity. They, you know, they want to emulate old Europe. And Quinn is saying, no, uh, all the excitement is this new, new art, new movement. He, he talks about living art. And he makes it his mission to kind of change American culture by promoting this new art. In addition, I think, and again, to Philip's point, Quinn not only is collecting modern art, but he has befriended, as you say, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, W.B. Yeats, Gertrude Stein. What's so interesting is Eliot is sending Quinn drafts of the Wasteland, his iconic poem, and saying, you know, what do you think? Can you help me get it published? So Quinn is not only just the collector of art, right, Philip, but he is also like the main force in entering into the American culture, Eliot's and Pounds and Joyce's and Yates of the world. He was an extraordinary impresario uh, running a, a really a, had so many balls in the air. Probably you will wonder for many years how this remarkable character was such truly prophetic in his vision of of the future and you're absolutely right you when you characterize when you go to that great stairwell at the metropolitan museum and you look at the names you know the vanderbilts the tildens you you look at the great habermeyers the great great new york uh, wasp aristocracy they were emulating they wanted dutch masters old dutch paintings uh 
English, so Joshua Reynolds and Gainsborough, the idea of modernism was completely, in fact, foreign. And they wanted to educate the working classes coming in, the new immigrants coming in to Ellis Island, to teach them how we had to create a more upper-class bourgeois society. This was what the Met and these institutions were about. And John Quinn is like this shark in the water who totally understands that all of this is not being an artist of, as Zola said, or was it Corbet, an artist must be of their time. And he understood that. Phenomenal so, individual. Hugh, tell us a little bit about his apartment. Yeah, so he never marries. He So he has this kind of uh, existence. He has a series of, of female companions, but he he lives in this rented 11-room apartment on Central Park West. And all of his money is earned. So throughout his life, he's earning and he's spending. And he spends everything he earns on art mostly, but also on artists, on manuscripts, on, you know, writing checks to James Joyce uh, so he can finish Ulysses. Uh, he is just a kind of one-man machine that uh, operating out of this apartment. And he eventually fills up every room with paintings, books, you know, new sculpture by Brancusi or uh, Duchamp Villon. The, the place is just stacked with art, but he, he doesn't care about framing it, hanging it. He invites friends over. There's nothing to see on the walls. There are just stacks of paintings in every single room. And, and he had this ritual where he'd have a dinner party. He, he'd make everybody wait until they've eaten. They've, he's served coffee. And then depending on his mood, he would bring out. He said, okay, tonight let's look at um, some early Matisse's. And he'd go into a back room and he'd pull them out one at a time. Or, you know, he'd take a cover off of one of his Brancusi's. Brancusi designed these kind of covers to protect these bronze statues that he's wild. You know, if you hadn't seen a Brancusi before, these are, are like a kind of very uh, reductive, essentialist, beautiful forms that might look like a, a an egg or a, or a Martian form if you've never seen one before. And his apartment was full of these. So, but it was kind of word of mouth thing. He he loaned out his art to gallerists that he liked, and he tried to get the Met to display them. They, they, um, um, but mostly his collection remained unknown as a complete collection, partly because it lacked this big audience that he was constantly trying to trying to build. You write in the book that the curator of the Met, in looking at some of these paintings, said, such mad pictures will never mean anything in America. Yes, and he was looking at 81 or 82 Picasso drawings, uh, which spanned the in, sort of entire decade during which Cubism uh, changed the world. I mean, this was a remarkable series of drawings that were being offered to the Met for <laughs> pennies, essentially. And the curator at the Met, who was actually one of the most progressive figures at the Met and eventually, you know, does get the museum to buy a Cezanne, he said, no, forget it, Picasso, forget it. Um, and this is 1911, but this story repeats over and over again. And one of the themes of the book is that 
Picasso wasn't just a failure in 1911. He failed in 1923. He failed in 1934. And this continues right up until the Second World War. This exhibition that you're talking about, this Picasso exhibition, was at the gallery of the famed photographer Alfred Steiglitz, the husband of Georgia O'Keeffe, of all things. And as you said, they there were 83 Picasso drawings, of which only one sold, and the remainder were offered to the Met at uh, $12 a piece, and they declined. And Philip, the thing, though, is that it wasn't just the rejection of this art in America, but Picasso's art was not really very well received elsewhere. In London, the post-impressionists were very highly criticized. I think one of the critics said, and this is what I'd like you to talk to, said that these artists, the Cezans, the, the Gauguins, the Picassos, the Duranes, they were part of, and here's the quote, a widespread plot to destroy the whole fabric of European painting. I don't think I've seen anything so stupid in my life, was a comment by one of the British critics to the art show. But this notion of destroying the whole fabric of European painting. Can you talk to that? What was, again, we're talking about this frontal attack, but it's different than just art to art because it's classist stuff too, the elite to the proletariat, if you will. That generation of painters that are working in Montmartre and that are working in these, uh, you know, uh, Puccini-esque, La Boheme, Attic, uh, working up in their studios, this generation of these foundations of the School of Paris. Look, they are individuals, and we appreciate that the artists, that the great artists all have these special antennae. These antennae are hearing and seeing and feeling the world, tectonic changes going on in the world around them. You know, and you places this in context that, while these artists were way ahead of their time, just as the boys were playing in Hamburg before anyone had ever heard the name of John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison, they were way ahead. And in this generational shift, this is why we endow these artists with such prophetic vision. Let's remember that the old world of Europe aristocracy, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, which be in Sarajevo in the summer of 1914, catapults the entire Western world into a, a transformation. Within five years, we will have a Bolshevik revolution. The world itself is going to go through seismic changes, and the artists are the ones who are giving us the telegraphic messages of what's going to come. And in that telegraphic message, Hugh, we see perhaps what is now thought of as the turning point of American art in the 20th century, and that's the exhibition of modern art at the Armory in 1913. So can you talk a little bit about the Armory show and the reaction to it? 
Yeah, the Armory show was sort of one of the great starting points of the book because coming into it, kind of American art history, art, the Armory show is like what the Rite of Spring was in Paris. Uh, it was supposed to be this turning point, uh, kind of overnight, uh, it, it, this huge show in New York, the first big show of, of advanced modern art. So the first time that Americans really had a chance to see not just Picasso and Matisse, but the, the kind of greater circle of the Paris avant-garde. And this event in the sort of conventional history, this is the beginning of modern art in the United States. And in fact, the, the legacy of the show is a lot more complicated. And that was, that was sort of one of the starting points of my book. John Quinn, the figure of the first half of my book is, is the kind of one of the main powers behind the armory show. He is pushing it. And it is in an armory in on Lexington Avenue, and then it goes to Chicago, and then its final stop is in Boston. And at each stop, it's kind of less liked and more more controversial. Uh, in Chicago, art students, young art students, are so angered by <laughs> the shocking disregard for artistic practice that these Matisses are showing that they they have a kind of mock effigy on the steps of the Chicago Art Institute. I mean it's hard to, it's hard to fathom just just how kind of crazed the reaction was to this art that was considered kind of invading. I mean the journalists talked about this invasion. So the sense of this subversive European kind of culturally dubious uh, force coming in through these artists. You know, the Chicago Vice Squad <laughs> investigated some of the nude paintings in the show. <laughs> so it was this radical moment that certainly jolted the country, but it didn't have this effect that Quinn hoped. It didn't suddenly bring this new audience. It, it didn't, for one thing, it didn't cause a lot of people to start buying modern art. And Quinn saw the future correctly probably as market there there had to be a market for this if the new art was going to succeed indeed duncan phillips a collector well known here in washington dc for the phillips collection filled with now what we would know as uh, the impressionist uh, school of art walked out of this armory show declaring the cubists as ridiculous and matisse as poisonous and Philip, to your continuing point, which I want to just keep going back to, because people have to understand the context, as you say, the New York Times editorialized that the Armory Show is surely part of the general movement discernible all over the world to disrupt and degrade, if not destroy, not only art, but literature and society, too. Can you talk about that a little and again, let's remember we are at this point in the, the, the show opens in February 1913 at the 26th Street Armory. And uh, the best take on it, besides the, the highfalutin, the high-minded pages of the New York Times, is that every New York newspaper and Chicago, one has to look at the cartoons, the illustrated cartoons that were sort of the, the, the voice of the people, the Popoli, the New York World Telegram ran a whole page of Sunday cartoons, and the headline was, Nobody Who Has Been Drinking 
is let in to see the show. Meaning the modern artist, the bohemian artist, not only, as you says, is, is subversive, is perhaps, you know, in the, we're, we're a few years ahead of the Bolshevik Revolution, but it's certainly the beginnings of um, a type of socialism is breeding. Not only are these people politically dangerous, but they are mentally uh, dangerous. And all of these hilarious cartoons are uh, of people who are, you know, either experiencing a kind of schizophrenia, looking at abstract paintings, looking at the rude descending staircase. And, and so modernism becomes almost a big joke to the American public. It's launched as fraudulent, dangerous, and something that is to be ridiculed. Well, and beyond that, I expect as we move a little bit forward into the Wilson administration, this stuff is deemed unable to be mailed, that it's subversive. And under the Espionage Act, they start refusing to even mail or allow to be seen this art in in this literature. But we'll turn to that in a little while. Um, Hugh, tell us, if you would, because we want to move forward to our next principal character, the second half of your book, Alfred Barr. But what happens to Quinn's collection? This is, in today's market, a multi-billion dollar art collection. What happens when he dies in 24? It's the single greatest collection in existence at the time of his death in 24. And and the remarkable thing about Quinn, as we said earlier, was not just that he had the taste for this, but he had what we would regard today. He could see which were the greatest. You know, he was, you know, Alfred Barr <laughs> looks back on Quinn and he says, He's astonished. He, he, not only did he know which were the best artists, he knew the best works by the best artists. So he has the best Picassos. He has the best Matisses. He has a complete collection of Brancusis. And 1924, he dies, doesn't have any immediate heirs. His will is a mess. His estate, uh, uncertain. There's, there's a question that, uh, so, so he has a niece and a sister. He wants to keep them. Uh, he, he, he's not, he's been spurned by the Metropolitan Museum. There's not a museum in the country that is ready to have this collection. And so he dies. It's, it's a kind of orphan collection. And there's a big dispute with the estate. It takes several years. But the, the end of the story is that it all goes back to Europe. All the best paintings, the most, the, the avant-garde paintings in his collection are sent back to Europe because the executors ultimately realized that as, as Quinn himself said before his, before his death, if there's an auction in New York, it's going to be a massacre. He knows that there, and his companion, Gene Foster says, who would buy 20 Picassos in this country, meaning the United States? So this kind of tragic ironies that, that this American right on Central Park West, has the collection that would be the core of a MoMA of the future. No one wants it. <laughs> He's too far ahead of his time. And so so that's the, that's the kind of break point that, from which Alfred Barr gets started. So who was Alfred Barr? So Quinn is dead. His collection is sent largely back to Europe, but a lot of it is just sold to random People. It's dispersed, yeah. It's dispersed, that's a good word. And his dream of establishing a museum of modern art dies with his death and the dispersion of his 
collection. And then onto the scene arrives Alfred Barr. Who is he? And when does he show up? So Alfred Barr, it's interesting. He's kind of a, a wunderkind, you know, who also, like Quinn, he doesn't come from wealth. His father is a preacher, He's, but he has a very good education. He gets a scholarship to Princeton, <laughs> and he knows, you know, he, he doesn't know anything about modern art, but he has an art professor sophomore year uh, who takes a liking to him and says, I'm going to take you to a show. There's this big show of post-impressionists in, in New York City. And they go to the show. His professor is Frank Jewett Mather, by the way, who was a previously a critic who wrote about the Armory show. He's one of the very few Princeton professors who's even interested in modern art, though he's pretty skeptical about um, Matisse and Picasso. He takes Barr to the show. Turns out this is the show that Quinn has finally gotten in the door of the Met. And it, it's a pretty uh, conservative show by Quinn's standards, but it includes a few... Matisse's and Picasso's. It's a kind of uh, overview of, of, of post-impressionism, Cezanne's. And, and, but for Barr, this is a turning point. He's never seen this art before. He sees it. He's like, this is the future. Why are they teaching me <laughs> all this Renaissance art? And from that point on, he is driven to make modern art, not only his career, but to change American culture. And he sort of takes off where, where Quinn uh, left off with this project of building a museum, building a culture, bringing this art to the United States. And he's lucky to have a benefactor, if you will, in Paul Sachs. Yes? That's right. Yeah. Paul Sachs of the banking family, uh, Goldman Sachs. He is a kind of black sheep of the family. He works in the bank for a few years and says, no, I, I want to be an art historian. And he goes to Harvard and he becomes a professor there. But his, his real career there is building the Fogg Museum at Harvard and, and even more so creating this, what's remembered today as the, the museum course. So uh, he looked around the country and said, you know, we don't have a professional group of scholar museum men, museum, most of them were men at the time, to run these new institutions that were, were being built all over the country. Every city wanted a great art museum, but there wasn't a, a group of people who understood the art market, understood the new forces in art, understood collectors and patrons, but also had that art history background to run a museum. And so Sachs kind of pioneers this and his star pupil is, is Alfred Barr, who he then with his connections, uh, Sachs, of course, is the first one who is asked when uh, Abby Rockefeller uh, wants to start this museum, can you find me a museum director? And he says, Oh, well, I, I know this guy. Uh, he's, he's pretty young. <laughs> he's still in grad school. You know, he's in his mid twenties and it's Alfred Barr. Michael, can I just jump in? Let's not forget, Barr is clearly uh, on the front edge at the Harvard Society for Contemporary Art. And this, this clique, this coterie of intellectuals, there's also a very brilliant young Jewish Brahmin from Boston, and he is Lincoln Kirstein. You, I just did a review for Art in America of Lincoln Kirstein's MoMA. So I've reached that through the Lincoln Kirstein 
Kirstein was the brother-in-law of the artist I brought back, Paul Cadmus. So that was a unique moment, 1927, 28, and that brought this, we had not only men of great taste, but connected to wealth. And that, that helped bring it all together as it arrived in the hands of the Rockefellers. So the museum sort of gets its start, I guess, in 1929 with Alfred Barr as the director. And now it's not this sprawling monolith of a building that we know now, but it's a set of bare rooms on the 12th floor in an office building with a minuscule budget. But they're doing interesting things, Hugh, are they not, in terms of how they're displaying paintings. Can you talk about this single eye sight leveling of paintings versus the salon? And even the showing of the art was a bit of a revolution. That's right. That's right. And so this is 1929, you know, a week after the stock market crash. It's probably the worst moment in history to start a new museum with no money and no home and actually no collection. But somehow they're going to do it. And the, the genius of it is that Barr is going to borrow all this art. And there's just going to be a continual cycle of loan shows. And they really pioneer this whole idea that you can just go around Europe and ask people to borrow art. And, you know, in those early years, Barr said, yeah, our one advantage was that no one else was asking um, so he was able to get paintings even from, you know, the Louvre and from important private collections. He had to really fight for them. But so the other thing was doing it in this totally new way. And so art at the time, I mean, the, the, the so-called salon style was, was just uh, four, you know, four to ceiling. So you would have sometimes three or even four levels of paintings on top of each other. And that was just, you know, crowded, walls were just crowded with paintings, often in these heavy gilt frames. And that was beginning to change in Paris. Some of the, the dealers, like Paul Rosenberg, were starting to do, well, let's give each, let's just do a single row of paintings. And Barr takes this to a further extreme. And he says, you know, there's an eye level here, and every painting should be centered on the eye level. And there should be a really careful thought into, you know, how are we displaying these as, as little distraction as possible, white walls, you know, gray or white floors, a minimal furniture in the room. And he's pushing towards this reframing the paintings and event, you know, within a few years, MoMA is actually, when they borrow paintings from a private collector, removing that gilt frame and putting on a simple white frame to make it just as pure as possible, this kind of pure experience. And that is a completely new way of seeing this very new art, and it becomes a thing in itself. I think for those who have been, would the salon style be represented by, say, the Barnes Museum? Exactly, exactly, yes. We're floor to ceiling, and it's so visually dizzying that you can't spend too long there because your senses are, are overwhelmed. So... One thing I want to turn to now is the vision that Barr had for this museum. And maybe each of you can talk a little bit about the so-called torpedo report and what was envisioned by Barr 
as he sort of has like a nervous breakdown when the museum is unable to find the money to buy uh, paintings for a permanent collection and his efforts to have a Picasso retrospective show fails. And he's just, he's like in a sanitarium almost in Europe. And there he has this vision of a torpedo moving through time, the nose being the ever-advancing present and the tail, the ever-receding past. And that so-called torpedo report is the vision that the MoMA adopts. So can you each talk a little bit about that? Because it's important to understand what is the MoMA today. And it's a reflection of that report in some sense. Yes. So this is 1933. <laughs> I mean, a, a crucial year for, for all sorts of reasons. Barr is in Europe. He's on this leave of absence. He's had this health crisis. And <laughs> he, he finds himself in Germany. And, and guess what's happening in 1933? Then, you know, he witnesses Hitler come to power, which is a shock in itself, because from an art perspective, Germany was this hotbed of modernism. So this was the Bauhaus. This was, you know, in the Weimar years, this was the real center of, of art culture. The German collectors were buying that new art that was so radical in Paris. And so for Barr, it was a complete shock to see not only the, the Nazis take over, but immediately start purging museums of modern art. And he sees this and he's radicalized. And meanwhile, he has to come up with this idea, like, how can I build a museum that still has no collection? And in the background here, there's a challenge because museums collected historic art. And this whole concept of modern art is against the, the idea of a museum. So Gertrude Stein says, you can be modern or you can be a museum, but you can't be both. <laughs> And the challenge for Barr is how do you, how do you square that circle? And the torpedo is his answer. So, and by the way, he's kind of obsessed with military. He, he loves military history. He thinks of modern art very much as a war. And so here he comes up with this torpedo, which is a collection that you build, but that changes over time. And so it's never static. You're always acquiring new art the newest, most radical stuff. And in that early conception, he also considers that older pieces from the collection would eventually be discarded. And so uh, if you have too many Cezans, we could pass some of them on to the Met. So it's this idea of a permanent collection that is continually evolving, which is completely radical. It's just a brilliant concept and actually really does drive what does happen at MoMA as it builds this new collection. Philip, I want to ask you to take us on a side track a little bit and tell us if you wouldn't mind, or I can ask you if you feel uncomfortable, who was Danielle Henry Conweiler and Paul Rosenberg? How do they fit into this? Yeah. Let me just go back one second because you was talking about this kind of formalistic training that uh, Barr had, and, and he was very missionary. He was really very, in, in terms of his pedagogy, he felt that MoMA had to teach, had to reach out. He created very creative types of labeling, and one of the absolute seminal images is Alfred Barr's 
chart of modernism that he created. And this was a very rigid step beginning with the Impressionist and the synthesis beginning around the 1880s. Then he moves through the various, it's almost as though there's a flow like the torpedo. And all of this comes together with this sort of development which canonizes the School of Paris as the origins of modern art. You, I had Glenn Lowry on the stage at my university about 10 years ago when they reopened the new MoMA, good old MoMA. And I said, uh, I, you know, in a, in a theme, a little prompting, I, I said, so what's the story with uh, your most popular painting there is installed next to the elevator, Andrew Wyatt's Christina's World. It's next to the elevator bank. And Glenn is a little bit embarrassed. And he said, well, Philip, it just doesn't work with the, with the flow. It doesn't work in the systematic, the bar vision of modernism. Michael Kahnweiler and Rosenberg are essentially the conduits for the, they not only are they the agents, the gallerists, the trusted family members, they are the ones who have the entrepreneurial understanding of how to disperse these radicalized paintings and put them into the right homes. Again, it's a series of accidents as you lays out. Not only World War I and Conweiler needing to flee Paris, World War II with the great Paul Rosenberg. There are heroic movies like Burt Lancaster's movie of the train, the great train, how Rosenberg fighting for the free French and how he manages to protect this collection of hundreds of paintings as he and his wife flee through Portugal to New York. These are amazing figures, and how it all came together is a kind of serendipity. It's just amazing that we... How it all happens is also, and I know that you you probably rethought this, this book by Serge Joubeau, How New York Stole the Idea of Modern Art. And again, these capricious, serendipitous actions all coming together, and there we walk into MoMA on 53rd Street. It's quite a miracle how it all happened. So, Hugh, I want to move forward a little bit and talk about Hitler's war on modernism, because this is an important part of this second half of the book. And you so well lay out what it was that the Nazi cultural policy and the policy of the Third Reich was all about. And you quote a Ministry of Education pamphlet saying, as Hitler is going across Germany, seizing modern art and prohibiting its display, he says that the pamphlet says, it is a mistake to think that the national revolution is only political and economic. It is above all cultural driven by insidious foreign influences and socialist ideas. Modernism is said to be destroying our country. So can you talk to a little bit, because World War II, as Philip says, is the catalyst for getting a lot of this art through Rosenberg and others out. But understanding Hitler's war on modernism is something that was more new to me than it should have been. And I'd like you to talk it through 
with us, please. Yeah, no, it, it's a really crucial part of the story, and it's a, a crucial part of Barr's story as well. As as I said, he he actually witnesses this, which is just remarkable. I mean, it's just extraordinary that the most important U.S. museum figure happens to be in Germany at this crucial crux moment. But what I think is important to know is before Hitler, so you had this very different geopolitics where the centers of modern art are in Europe, are Germany and Russia, these sort of old world powers that had very modern art cultures. And by contrast, the United States is the one that's behind. And the United States has these conservative and in some cases extreme tendencies to react to modern art. And you see early on the reaction against what's called Bolshevik, or as, as Philip said, this kind of mental, you know, deranged, as, it, as it's called, deranged art. And those tradition, you know, calling art, modern art, degenerate, is actually in currency in the United States years before this becomes a thing in Nazi Germany with the famous degenerate art show. And so when the Nazis come to power, they see this as a kind of cultural cleansing because Germany has been, been so modernized. It is a threat to them that there is this very widespread culture in, you know, even average sized German towns have modern art museums. So they need to just sweep it clean. And the idea that a lot of this art is coming from France, it's Jewish, it's socialist are all sort of themes that they seize upon immediately. I mean, it's astonishing how quickly this happens. Hitler has taken over the chancellery and immediately museums, the paintings are coming down. And Barr seeing this, it's, it's this kind of amazing opportunity as well for the United States in the sense that now there's a democratic argument for modern art. The modern art is now part of the kind of arsenal of democracy. And this is at a point when there's a lot of skepticism, the Great Depression, there's there's a push for a kind of American vernacular art. Think of some of the great WPA murals that decorated the country. This was not about European modernism. So Barr has an uphill battle in the Great Depression. And with the Nazis, suddenly he's given this really powerful argument about freedom and democracy. He kind of brings in to his his push for broader acceptance of modern art in the 30s, culminating, of course, in World War II, when there's an opportunity to bring so much of this art to the United States. Yeah, there is a connection, Philip, is there not, between, at the time, modern art and liberal forms of government? As, as Hugh said, there's a gathering battle between democracy and totalitarianism, and famously, uh, the New York art critic Lewis Mumford, in his book Mumford on Modern Art, says, and this is what I'd like you to talk to, Philip, he says, in certain circumstances, a bowl of fruit by Brock, the modernist painter, might feel like the Statue of Liberty. Well, I mean, these things are, it's, it's haunting how these themes recycle. As Marcel Proust said, it, you know, past is prologue. And, uh, we have school boards all over the United States today that are arguing that they want to control the books. And, gee, we're going to go back to book burnings in the first phases of the Third Reich. Art 
culture. We're reliving a, another cycle of the culture war. And what when you made the point that how fascinating, whereas in the interwar years, during the WPA, during the genius of the New Deal art projects, it was to paint America, to get back to America's roots, what Germany, blood and soil, to our roots. And yet, by the post-World War II era, we were using modernism and the American embassies were sending exhibits. MoMA was sending exhibits of Pollocks and Rothkos and de Kooning's to show what real freedom and liberty is like in a truly open society. So the wheel has turned dramatically, and it's almost, if, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, Again, the artists are the ones who are telling us what's going on in our society, for sure. Yeah, and we saw that famously years back when there were exhibits in MoMA that Rudy Giuliani and other conservatives objected to and wanted to have removed. Brooklyn Museum, the sensation show, and Mayor Giuliani threatened to remove the funding of the Brooklyn Museum because of the exhibition of works that were too in the face of the, the let's say, the more uh, plebeian taste. We're almost out of time. MoMA finds its permanent home. Nelson Rockefeller takes over from his mom. The museum gets sort of off the board, and it, it is now. And finally, Barr gets his Picasso retrospective. So talk a little bit about the Picasso retrospective, and then I want to turn to one last thing that Philip raised with respect to the Rosenbergs. Yeah, well, I mean, the important thing to know here is, is I think as Philip said, I mean, there's not only so much serendipity, but contingency. It almost didn't happen right up until the end. This, this show that Barr had been working on for a decade really almost doesn't happen. It's January 1939. They finally schedule it. It's going to happen that November. Of course, January 1939, there's no war yet. November 1939, the world has changed. And it's during that run-up and start of the war that Barr has to get this show finally together. And so summer of 1939, Paris is closing down. Everybody's expecting an invasion. Collectors are putting their collections in their basements. They're locking them up. He goes to Paris expecting to visit all these collections. He, he can't see anything. There, there are no paintings that anybody wants to, to get out. Uh, so he ends up spending the entire time holed up in Paul Rosenberg's gallery. And <laughs> luckily, Rosenberg's there with, with, with all of his Picassos. And he sees Picasso. It looks like this show is going to come together. But then September, the war comes. How much of that art still has to make it to New York? It's just an incredible story right up until the moment the show opens. It's touch and go, which paintings are going to turn up, which collectors are going to be willing to send them. And already in the summer, Barr sees this threat of war and he's, he's doing everything he can to persuade these collectors. You know, it's okay. Put them on a boat. Those paintings are going to be safer in the United States. And he even makes this foresighted arrangement. Uh, what he calls a, a war loan agreement in which he agrees to keep the paintings if a war starts until the war ends. So this is this brilliant thing that actually in the end gives MoMA this 
golden opportunity to have these paintings, not just for the show, but <laughs> for the duration of World War II. And that is the beginning of this incredible national story of this show, which can now travel to not just a few, but dozens of cities. So Philip mentions Rosenberg as a French Jewish art collector who was instrumental in getting many, many of these most priceless art works out of France. I'd like you to end by telling us who de Sousa Mendes was and how he fits into this story. Yes. Uh, so this is, again, just, just one of the other really amazing serendipitous stories that really ultimately changed the art world. And so what happens to Paul Rosenberg? Famously, as is well known, his gallery was ransacked as soon as the Nazis take over Paris. And for decades, he and his heirs uh, had to track down those paintings that were captured in France. But what happened to Rosenberg himself? So June 1940, uh, he's already moved his family as far away from Paris as possible, which uh, at that time was Bordeaux. And he's just kind of hedging, seeing what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, Rosenberg at this time, he's this great, powerful art dealer. The, the idea that he would have to flee just really, even even watching the Nazis, he's not persuaded that he, he has to go. And it's really up to the final days of the takeover. Bordeaux has become this scene of, of refugees from all over Europe. Everybody's trying to get out. And there is this Portuguese consul general, Aristides de Sousa Mendes, who turns out to be a kind of Schindler figure, you know, or a Wallenberg. He goes rogue. And in these last days, it's literally a, a span of like five or six days in June. He's writing visas to every single applicant that he can. And one of these lucky recipients of a, of a visa from Sousa Mendes to Portugal is the Rosenberg family. And they, they are able to get into the Portuguese consulate. They get these visas, but they still have to make it to Portugal. So uh, how are you going to do that? You have to cross General Franco's Spain, which of course is not particularly friendly to Jews. And uh, it's a dicey situation. They pile in the family car. They undertake this multi-day journey across Spain, which is still ravaged by the Spanish Civil War. And they have to spend the night in this hotel. It's filled with Gestapo agents. They somehow make it to Portugal. And it's, again, Portugal at that time is filled with refugees that are stuck there. Because once you're in Portugal, you still have to go somewhere. It's really hard. There are no more boats. So for this summer of, of 1940, all of Rosenberg's paintings are traveling all over. His Picassos are now a sensation in the United States, but he's stuck. He's this, he's reduced to this refugee status in Portugal and somehow he's got to get out. I mean, he's going to the U.S. embassy every day. You know, they won't give him the time of day. And so he starts writing his friends, uh, everyone he could think of, every American connection he could think of, write letters to the U.S consulate in Lisbon, <laughs> he, Alfred Barr, on his behalf, please admit uh, Paul Rosenberg, uh, an advisor to the Museum of Modern Art, 
Paul Sachs at Harvard. Please admit Paul Rosenberg. I want to bring him to Harvard to lecture. All these important art world figures advocate for Rosenberg. And it's, it's astonishing to think an art dealer having all this cultural support from the United States. And finally, they, they give him the visas and he makes it to New York. The thing I want to emphasize is de Sousas Mendes, who was the Portuguese consul general in Bordeaux, is given orders not to issue any visas. And, and it drives him to bed. And he stays in bed for two days. And then he says, in sort of like an epiphany, you know what? I'm not going to do that. And he gets out of bed and he starts writing visas for everybody until finally the Portuguese government figures out what he's doing and shuts it down. So he is a Wallenberg or a Schindler who is recognized in Israel as, as such, but is that who saves Rosenberg, who in turn saved modern art, who allowed you, therefore, to write your book. So <laughs> we owe a lot of thanks to that series of serendipitous events. But Philip, I want to end by asking you a question that I first asked you in Binghamton in 1972. And that question is, why does art matter? Art matters because in a world that is becoming increasingly connected by algorithms and bots, you know, I'm a big fan of Yuval Harari, of this sort of dystopian future. Art matters more than ever because this is what every ounce down to our toes is going to keep us as sane and healthy and loving human beings. Well put. Hugh and Philip, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. And I appreciate, Hugh, very much you having written this book. It's a terrific read. And we've just touched upon some of the fascinating stories they have to tell. So the readers have a lot more to learn when they pick up this book at the bookstore. Thank you both. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.